Hello, everyone. We originally recorded this episode with Professor Ari Kelman on March 4th, 2022, as part of our Learning About Learning webinar series. We're delighted to release it now as an episode of our podcast. Ari is a scholar of American religion, and in this episode, we spoke about his recent book, forthcoming in a series at Rutgers University Press, called Keywords in Jewish Studies. His title for the book is just two words, Jewish Education. Ari discussed the way that education is as big and broad and diverse as Jewish culture itself. But something important changes when we get to modernity. Before modernity, educational efforts tended to focus on helping people to be better people, to serve God, to live up to some religious ideal. But with modernity, we start to see a new focus on helping people to be Jews, to be connected to the Jewish people, to resist assimilation, to be committed to a Jewish collectivity. In other words, in modernity, we start to see educational projects that are designed to serve a national project. This conversation is particularly relevant to Jewish educators and Jewish professionals because Ari helps us to think about some of our assumptions about what counts as Jewish education and what kind of Jewish education matters. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoyed listening to my conversation with Ari as much as I enjoyed talking to him. Hello, and welcome to the Jack Joseph and Morton Mandel Center for Studies in Jewish Education at Brandeis University. My name is John Levison. I'm the director of the Mandel Center, and I'm delighted to bring you another installment in our podcast, Learning About Learning. At the Mandel Center, we are committed to advancing the field of Jewish educational scholarship, especially scholarship on teaching and learning, in order to make a deep and lasting difference on the lives of learners and the vibrancy of the Jewish community. That's our mission. We know that there's great scholarship being done in the field of Jewish education, but it's not always accessible. And even when it is, it's not always obvious why people in the field of Jewish education should care about it. That's what this podcast is about, making really interesting scholarship on Jewish education accessible and talking with scholars about why it matters. Thanks for being here, and I hope you enjoy learning about learning as much as I do. Let's get started. Our guest today is our friend and colleague, Ari Kelman. Ari is the Jim Joseph Professor of Education and Jewish Studies at the Stanford Graduate School of Education. He's also an affiliated scholar here at the Mandel Center for Studies in Jewish Education. And we've had the opportunity to work together on a book called Beyond Jewish Identity. We published that a couple of years ago, and that's available open access. We'll put a link in the chat for those of you who would like to get access to that book electronically. You can follow the link to Ari's bio for his other scholarship, but today we're talking about a book manuscript that he's just completed for publication in the coming months. The title of the book, it's an extremely creative title. The title is Jewish Education. And the reason for that title is that this is a book in the series at Rutgers University Press called Keywords in Jewish Studies. The name of the series is Keywords in Jewish Studies. Each book tackles a different word or phrase. In other words, Ari is offering this book as a broad and ambitious overview of how to think about the entire enterprise of Jewish education. Ari, it's good to see you. Hi, John. Thanks for the invitation and thanks for having me. Great. So let's start. This book project is different from much of your other scholarship. And typically in your other work, you take a particular phenomenon and you kind of zero in and you learn as much as you can about that 
phenomenon through archival work or through interviews or sometimes through ethnographic field work, but this is different. So tell us how this particular project came about. So you mentioned before that it's for the Rutgers series in keywords, and it seemed to me that they hadn't yet had a book about Jewish education, so I pitched it to the series editors and they thought it was a good idea. And it's just a different way of writing about it. Like you said, most of my work is sort of focused on a particular phenomenon or event, and this was a chance to pull back and take a more, a broader perspective, like a 30,000 foot view of Jewish education. It's not supposed to be a research book. It's supposed to be generally accessible. It's supposed to be a kind of broad overview, making a case for why this is a key word in Jewish life. So it didn't require a lot of original empirical research. As a result, that was, it's not a research book in that way. It's more synthetic. And so it was a chance to stretch out a little bit, and actually get a bigger perspective. Yeah, actually, one of the delightful things in reading it was to see, so as you said, it's not new empirical research, you haven't gathered new data on a particular phenomenon, but it's extremely well researched. And it's really delightful to see the wide range of sources and scholarship that you draw on in order to make the argument. That's a lot of fun to sort of see those conversations that you're having with folks in Jewish history, with folks in general education, cognitive scientists, a whole, whole range of folks. But let's talk about the argument of the book. So you mentioned 30,000 feet. So at that level, what do you want people to know? Well, the first thing I want people to know is that Jewish education, I think, is central to the enterprise of Jewish life and has been for centuries, quite literally. And from my perspective, and maybe from yours, John, you know, all of the texts that are now the focus of so much adult education, so much day school education, that have really been the heart and soul of, of the period known as rabbinic Judaism, those are educational texts. They're designed to teach people how to access something, or they're designed to, to transmit knowledge from one person to another, from one body to another. And that's educational, even though the authors of that text don't necessarily or may not necessarily see themselves as engaging in an educational enterprise. I think we can see them as educational from this side of things. So that's sort of thing number one is Jewish education is central to Jewish civilization, Jewish life, all the dimensions in which Jewish life has been lived over the centuries. If we believe thing number one, then thing number two is that Jewish life is a world of ideas. It's a world of knowledge. And I don't mean that that just takes place in the cognitive realm. I think there's lots of ways that we can learn things and lots of ways that we can know things. We learn things through our bodies. We learn things by eating. We learn things by doing. Our muscles have memory and so on. Our senses have memories and so on. And so I don't think it's just, it's not just intellectualist argument, but I do think there's something about coming to understand, coming to know elements of Jewish life that is part of the sort of ongoing unfolding history of the Jewish people people and of Jewish communities around the world. So I think it's important when we think about Jewish life, we think about it as something primarily organized around the transmission of information, the transmission of knowledge from uh, person to person, community to community, both kind of um, at the same time, but also over time. Yeah. So just to pull out a couple of threads from what you said. So on the one hand, there's an argument about sort of how to think about the ongoing evolution of Jewish culture, Jewish civilization as a kind of educational enterprise. But you're always careful not to be anachronistic about it, right? You're not kind of reading into the past, here are the schools and here are the curricula and here's the teacher education. You're kind of avoiding that reduction of the vast educational enterprise only to formal schooling. You're thinking about it much more broadly. And that actually leads me to the next thing I want to ask. So your first chapter, you structured your first chapter in a kind of amusing way. You gave us an alphabet of different terms of one entry for every letter, a few extra entries. And the experience for the reader is sort of, it's not reading one synthetic argument, but it's sort of looking over and over and over again and, and finding these different insights. My favorite entry in that 
first chapter was the entry for the letter Mem, where your word is Masar, uh, which is Hebrew for he transmitted. It's closely connected to Misorah, or it's sometimes the word for tradition. And you use this entry almost as an opportunity to meditate on the meaning of transmission. And there's a really interesting move where the way I read it was that you were kind of redeeming the idea of transmission. So so here's something that you wrote. You wrote, and this is your quote, perhaps, quote, transmission does not really capture the meaning here. A better definition of masar might be, quote, to entrust. To give knowledge over to another person is to entrust them with its care. To give something over entirely means also to surrender the responsibility for it. To encourage another to take responsibility for something means enabling that other person to assume ownership of it. I thought that was really a, a really powerful passage, really evocative. And that feels to me like it's an kind of increasingly important thread in your argument. So could you say more about what you're trying to argue in that passage? So it's really easy to argue. So yeah, so I struck that first part as an olive bed. I thought that was like accessible and, and a little bit cheeky given the sort of history of like, you know, primers and glossaries in educational text. So I thought it was a good way to do that. And it hits at the keywords in that way. That uh, that's actually, I mean, I think that's what it's all about. Like if we're just interested in education as a form of cultural reproduction, then we're not going anywhere right? We're just trying to ever reproduce the thing that already existed. And I actually think that education and learning grind to a halt if that's the model, because nothing new can come out of that system. It's a closed system. But if we think of transmission more broadly, entrusting someone else with the responsibility for something, and then allowing that other person to do with it what they will, not necessarily do with it what they will, but to take responsibility for its further transmission, for elaboration, for improvisation, and so on, that's a whole lot more interesting to me. And I think it actually speaks to the ways that education works more generally. Generally, which is to say it's not a matter of ensuring that a person knows the same thing from generation to generation, but they change necessarily from generation to generation and understanding that part of this process is one that invites connection and change at the same time, I think is vital. And so that was the source of that one particular definition. Great. So one of the things that starts to emerge, especially in the second chapter of the work, is thinking about how modernity might be a little different. So the second chapter focuses on a question that's at the heart of Jewish education, maybe of any education. How do we help another person to be a person of a particular kind? But the term Jewish education may be a kind of, it has a potential for a certain kind of anachronism in which we sort of toss all kinds of cultural phenomena from the history of Jewish life and practice. So what's different about modernity? Even though the enterprise of Jewish education is about the transmission of tradition or culture, there are some things that are different in modernity. What do you see as different? I think the main shift that I track in that second chapter is one, I think, in kind of focus rather than overarching theory. The overarching theory is that until modernity or up through modernity, the question that has animated so much Jewish educational effort, and I'm careful not to apply the term Jewish education. I don't even think I use it when talking about anything before modernity, because I think, as you said, it is anachronistic. But any of those efforts to transmit knowledge, to reproduce knowledge, I think is about, they all light on this concern of how do you use ideas to create certain kinds of people. Before modernity, I think the thread that I trace, the thread that I found in the sources, was one that was primarily about serving God. So the writers, whether it's you know Rashi or Joseph Caro, were interested in making texts that were available to people that would enable them to serve God in the appropriate way and to resist temptations, whatever those might be. So they were interested in creating that kind of person. In modernity, that shifts 
to a question of how do you produce the kind of people who are committed to the Jewish people? So this enterprise called the Jewish people, the idea of a nation uh, sort of comes to the fore in modernity in new ways. And then in modernity, whether it's just because we have more sources or the number of sources actually proliferated, we have lots more examples. We have uh, schools for Jewish girls. We have the Alliance Israeli through the sort of Mediterranean basin in North Africa. And you have secular schools, you have religious schools, you have yeshivas in Lithuania and so on all of which are concerned in one way or another with creating Jewish people, that is to say, people with a commitment to the Jewish people, capital mm-hmm. J, capital P. And that isn't to say that they don't also engage sometimes in questions about how best to serve God, but overwhelmingly the conversation focuses into how do you use the body of Jewish knowledge to create people with a commitment toward a sense of a Jewish collectivity. And that does emerge very strongly in modernity. Yeah, so some of that has to do with increasing awareness of choices that people can make, have the capacity to make. Some of it, I'm sure, has to do with sort of evolving understandings of nationalism. Not that there wasn't any sense of a collectivity before, of course there was, but the coming together of kind of a national project and an educational project that serves the national project, that that seems to be a distinctive feature of modernity. One of the things, one of the kind of threads that I noticed has to do with class differences within the Jewish community. And here I'm thinking not so much about differences of wealth, but specifically differences of educational backgrounds. Now, clearly those things come together. Typically the folks who are wealthy have the opportunity to have more education, but in the kind of Jewish historical context, it seems to me that it's mostly what you're focusing on is differences of educational background. And the thing that we call education tends to focus on the knowledge or the texts that are produced by elites or that are valued by elites, even though sometimes that effort, that educational effort is focused on the non-elites, right? Helping the non-elites to, if not become elites, at least sort of join the project of the elites, right? Proposing this is a good way to live. Like we elites have figured out a good way to live and we'd like to invite you in. So this is kind of familiar, this elite non-elite divide is familiar, but it's also problematic. So how do you see this playing out in problematic ways? I love that question. There's a lot of, I'd say, you know, in the last, I don't know, 40, 50 years, writing about Jewish education that takes as a kind of archetype the idea of the educated Jew. What is the educated Jew? And then you have an idea of the educated Jew, and the educated Jew possesses certain kinds of knowledge. And then the idea is you build a scaffold so that the rest of us uneducated Jews can, you know, achieve that status at some point. You model you modulate the educational process backwards from an ideal. And that's, I think, the sort of class bias that you're, that you're uh, suggest- the co- a version of that class bias that you're suggesting. I was at my niece's bat mitzvah recently in Los Angeles, and I was sitting in shul, which is not something I do very often. But I was wondering, like, okay, if I want to come to shul, as most American Jews do, which is to say never or rarely, what is not what does the educated Jew know? I don't need to know what the person who's davening needs to know or what the person who's reading Torah needs to know, but what is the, the sort of, what do I need to know in order to participate? What's As opposed to beginning with a kind of model of the educated Jew and expecting everybody to rise to that, which is not something that has ever happened historically. What are the kind of minimum levels that one maybe ought to have, which is, again, prescriptive in a way that I don't know I need to be, but that one ought to have in order to participate, not as a leader of a congregation, but as a participant in a congregation. Maybe I just need to know how to follow the pages. Maybe I just need to know the chunks of the of the morning service so I can be like, oh, we're at about this section now, and I sort of know that we're probably going to end around 12 or 1230. But maybe if 
we start with a, a kind of not like I'm a huge music fan. I'm a terrible musician, right? But I can still be a great music fan. And it doesn't mean I'm participating any less in the culture of music. And so I wonder, I think about that as like, what if we orient the sort of the efforts of Jewish education away from this one that is constructed around an ideal of an educated Jew and more towards one about what one ought to have in order to participate in an informed way. Right, right. What's intriguing to me about that example, one of the things that's intriguing to me is that you know, this comes up in, in your work and I've been thinking about this of moving from the paradigm of possessing knowledge as the goal of education to a paradigm of producing, of producing a cultural performance or a practice or, you know, in certain cases, a ritual. But there are different seats on the bus, right? There are different locations from which you perform a practice. You can be right, the leader of the practice or you can be a kind of a knowledgeable participant who knows the right things, who knows the things you need to know in order to participate, whether it's knowing the music well enough. And it's not a linear on a linear scale, right? right. Of, if you don't know anything, you're outside the hall. If you know a little bit, you're inside the hall. If you know a lot, you're the center of attention. There are different things, actually, that you know and different ways of accessing. Right. And I think uh, communities thrive on diversity, right? So we can't all be driving the bus. We also can't all be passengers on the bus. Right. You can only have, and, and you, if we to extend the bus metaphor, perhaps more than it is worth, you have fewer drivers than you have passengers. And passengers right. use the bus in all kinds of different ways. And for anybody who's ever spent significant time in Shul, you know that lots of really smart people are outside in the hallway, you know, at key points in the service, or that people are not following along all the time. And it's one of the, it's one of the real joys, I think, of, of that kind of context in which one can engage in a variety of different ways over time. There's not only one way of engagement, especially in that kind of community. And, you know, you introduced the example of, of a synagogue service, but, you know, we're a week before Passover. And one of the dramatic things there is that that's a service that doesn't happen centrally in the synagogue, right? It happens paradigmatically in the home. So that reminds us that we need to interrogate what is our paradigm of a Jewish cultural performance, right? Is it the thing with the spotlight in a communal setting? Surely it is that, but it is also other things, like, I don't know, cooking in the home, uh, not just actually leading the Seder, but doing the preparation beforehand, which is also a Jewish cultural practice, which involves actually a tremendous amount of knowledge. As you said, it tends to be embodied knowledge of how one prepares for Passover rather than strictly speaking book knowledge, although in some cases it is. So I want to ask you, looking at the time, you're um, already almost out of time. I want to ask you about surprises. What did you discover as you were writing this book that surprised you? The definition kept oozing out of itself. Like, it's really hard to write about education if you think that education is omnipresent, because every, then it just becomes everything. And so containing it into a narrative was actually sort of challenging, because it was... You know, once I sort of put on those goggles, it was everywhere. But you can't write a book about everything. That's not right. a very good book. So trying to sort of focus it down was was challenging. Yeah. So and one of the questions that's come from the audience is about sort of what counts as as Jewish education. Were there moments where you were thinking like, well, here's something that's historically contested? Not really. I mean, I uh, it's a really good question. And so my cheeky, my, not my, my sneaky out is that Jewish education doesn't exist until modernity when you get sort of effortful institutions put toward the trans mission of knowledge in a particular place. Prior to that, you just get knowledge. And you have schools, like there are scribal schools, there are rabbinic institutes of rabbinic training, clearly. What went on in them and what people learned is a little vague because the historical record isn't so rich around many of those things. And they're called schools, at least we call them schools. And so I think education, the more I think about it, and I'm working on the revisions of the manuscript now, 
is that there is something intentional about it, which sets it apart, I think, in a way from learning in general and from knowledge production in general. There's an intentionality behind it. And I would probably say that if I had to give you an on one leg definition, which you are asking me to do, so I will do it. It's that there's an intentionality around the knowledge that's being transmitted that still leaves it open to all kinds of settings and ways of learning and ways of transmitting. But it has principally to do with the transmission of knowledge and has, has to do with an intentionality behind that transmission. Right, right. And one of the things you chart is, is you're trying to pay attention to the evolving purposes of this intentional activity, right? Not to be anachronistic and imagine that, well, you know, we've got these schools that are somehow trying to make Jews in modernity, and that's what was happening in a medieval academy or, or rabbinic study circle. Right. A school is just a place. And like a drosh reading from the Torah, like those were educational undertakings, right? They were a way of teaching people something in a setting that wasn't a school. Schools are just a mechanism. They're just a delivery mechanism for delivering this stuff at scale and sort of systematically. That's right. what they are. But people learn things all over the place, as we know. Great. Yeah, so it's quite an ambitious project. Once you've defined Jewish education broadly as you have, it's quite an ambitious project to say, all right, so how do we how do we kind of wrap our hands around this sprawling enterprise, which in one sense is is as big as all of, of Jewish culture? So last question, what do you think Jewish educators should learn from this book about their own settings? What's the big takeaway? The third chapter, not to scoop my own project, but the third chapter says we need a pivot in Jewish education, if, if most of Jewish education and Jewish life was principally organized around this question of how do we use ideas to create certain kinds of people, I think we need to pay in the future, I think we need to pay more careful attention to the ways in which people produce ideas, not only the ways in which ideas produce certain kinds of people. And that kind of empowerment actually gets back to the first question, John, that you asked about that issue at the crux of Masar, the verb, right? What it is to entrust somebody with a body of knowledge such that they can take with it and run with it. And then when we shift from just sort of handing something off to thinking about knowledge as something that is produced in that context, all kinds of really interesting things can start to happen. And I think until Jewish education develops a, a deeper understanding of learning and how people learn, where and how people learn and what people learn, we're always going to be stuck in a, in a kind of question that I think has um, not entirely run its course, but largely run its course. Great. You snuck in there, for those who are paying close attention, you snuck in there a call for more research, right? We need more you. research on how people learn and what actually takes place in these learning contexts. Not simplistic assessments of learning, but much more robust ethnographic understandings of, of all the complicated ways that, uh, that learning takes place, or sometimes doesn't. Thank you, Ari. It's great to talk with you about your work. I want to thank everyone for joining us. I encourage you to check out the Mendel Center events page to learn about upcoming events as well as recordings of past events. Our next session, our last session for the year in this series of Learning About Learning will be with Dr. Michal Bitone. The title there is How Jewish Communities Educate. In a way, it will be a, an interesting uh, continuation in, some, in, in a certain respect of this conversation. Thank you all for joining us. Thank you, Ari. Take care.